Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is the test review for the Unit 1 test on the foundations of American government. Uh, if you like to follow along with the review while you listen, uh, it is on eClass as a Google Doc. You can feel free to download it and follow along. Uh, so remember, the test is 40 questions. It is made up of all multiple choice. There is no FRQ for this one. And uh, there is a, I think there's a good mix of depth of knowledge questions, one, two, and three. One being the lowest level with simple recall. Two and three being stimulus-based with uh, stuff. And when I say stuff, like graphs and charts and quotes and passages, uh, scenarios that you have to read and interpret and add up and all that kind of good stuff. So there's a, a, a good mix of questions on there. I think some are going to be easier than others, obviously. Uh, take your time, read through each question, and uh, try and sort out what you think is the best answer. All right, let's get rolling. So first up on your review is the social contract in John Locke. <clears throat> so we went through a, a couple of philosophers on like the second day that we were together. And John Locke was one of them. Uh, he and Montesquieu are typically the ones that show up. Uh, John Locke, remember, is going to be the natural rights person. He is going to write about the fact that we all are born with natural rights. And those are the right to life, liberty, and property. Okay. So uh, Thomas Jefferson is going to take from John Locke the natural rights. And he changes it to the pursuit of happiness. Now, part of that is kind of to compromise with the, the southern states. Because uh, the southern states were not going to you know, really agree to a document that said all men are created equal. All people have the right to life, liberty and uh, property as it was written uh, because of the, the slave issue at the time. So it got changed. Uh, so the Declaration of Independence borrows heavily from the natural rights, though, in John Locke's writings. Okay. Now, the social contract aspect still is all about the, the natural rights because John Locke is going to believe that the government's sole job in the contract is to protect our natural rights. So we give up our right to govern. And then the government agrees. That might be the wrong way to say it. Uh, they agree to govern us fairly. Okay. And John Locke's going to write specifically, hey, their job is to protect our natural rights. All right. James Madison and Fed 10. So remember, overall, the Federalist Papers were a series of essays written to support the Constitution. And so uh, basically, James, Adam, James Madison Alexander Hamilton and John Jay uh, basically go through some of the arguments and the, the problems that the anti-Federals have with the new constitution. And they're like, well, hey, here's the solution. So you see this problem. Here's how the, how, how the constitution is going to handle it. In Fed 10, James Madison addresses the factions. All right. And remember, the factions are just the groups. And basically, Madison says, factions, groups are going to happen. There's just no way around it. And remember in the federal negative, Madison had done a lot of study of republics. And remember, he, he looked at uh, things over in Greece. He looked at a couple other republics. And he came to the conclusion that the factions within the republics are going to happen no matter what. Okay. And his concern was in a small republic, if the majority takes over, 
then they can really become the controlling and driving force in that republic. And so he's going to argue in his in the in the whole uh, federal negative paper we talked we we discussed in class, and then in the factions uh, in Fed Ten, he's going to argue that hey, the best way to combat these factions is through a large republic. And so that's the argument he's going to make is, hey, the small republics, the states had their chances, okay? Uh, and they didn't do what they were supposed to. And so that led to problems. The best way to control these groups is through the large republics. All right, Fed 10 versus Brutus. Um, so remember, Fed 10, we just said, was all about how the large republics uh, are going to be best to control the uh, the factions, the groups. Brutus is going to be the opposite. So whenever you say something, uh, you know, Federalist paper versus Brutus, Brutus is going to say the opposite or vice versa. Federal, Fed 10 and the Federalist papers are always going to be the opposite of what Brutus said. Uh, so Fed 10, hey, large republics are the best way to control factions. Brutus uh, thinks that the small states, the small individualized states versus a central government would be best to control uh, factions. All right, there is a passage from Fed 21. Talked about this in class. Uh, remember, College Board will sometimes put on to their tests items that we don't cover in class. So we've covered the Federalist Papers, but we have not covered Fed 21. There is a passage from Fed 21 that you'll have to read and interpret. And so we just we practice that. So I'm not going to talk about Fed 21 uh, in this podcast. Uh, you can feel free to look it up. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, there is the passage. All the information you need is in there. All right. The weaknesses of the articles. Uh, you've got a this is a, the table question. So I, I gave you an example uh, on your study guide of the table question. And so there'll be a column that'll have the weaknesses. And then there'll be a column that has the constitutional fixes. You'll need to be able to sort out and figure out which is the correct row. So which has the correct weakness with the correct fix. So let's run through some of these. Now, these came from the federal negative. So we read through that. Um, hopefully, you know, when we discussed it and went through all those different problems that the, the articles had, um, you, you, you got those. All righty. Uh, so first off is going to be the taxing issue. Remember, the, the articles gave no power, no authority to the national government to, to levy taxes. They could only ask the states to police in money. And remember the number. We, they asked for $5 million and they got 400000 all right, from the states. Um, so that was not a good thing. The constitutional fix to that is that, hey, the national government can tax. They're the only ones. That, well, not the only ones. They share that power. But uh, you know, they can levy taxes and they uh, have that power through the supremacy clause. All right. Um, next up is the, uh, the, the lawmaking body. You know, there is one single house under the, the articles. And every single state had a single vote. So everybody was equal. All right. Uh, the fix there is we're going to go to two house legislature with one based on population and the other one based on equality. Laws. So to make a law, you needed nine out of 13 states. Um, that was a problem. Okay. Uh, and that was fixed through the, the two house legislature with the representation being based on population, and the Senate being based on equality. To amend the Constitution, or excuse me, to amend the Articles, you had to have 13 out of 13 states to say yes. To fix that, we have the amendment process. 
Okay. Uh, two thirds of the National Congress say yes to a proposal. Three fourths of the states say yes. There was no military under the Articles. There was no national military. Let me take that back. So no, no national military. So uh, Congress creates military in the Constitution. No national executive. No president to look to. We didn't call it the president at the time, but there's no executive. Constitutional fix, Article 2, creates a, a president. Commerce was a mess. Remember, the states could tax each other. All right? So the only people now that can control interstate commerce is the National Congress under the Constitution. Okay? Uh, foreign trade. States were trading and doing what they wanted to. Well, not anymore. The only people that can control foreign commerce is the federal government, the Congress. Okay, so those, uh, I think those are all the weaknesses and the constitutional fixes. All right, feds versus anti-federalists. Overall, remember the federalists were for the strong central government. The anti-federalists were against it. They were for the state rights. All right, uh, they were okay. Now, they agreed that the, the Articles of Confederation needed to be changed, needed to be amended, uh, but they were okay with the states maintaining power and authority over the central government. Brutus I is going to be all about individual rights. Brutus... And at the end of the day, the, the anti-federalists as a whole, their concern was where are the individual rights being protected under the Constitution? Because the Articles had left it to the states, and the states had, for the most part, looked out for individual citizens. Okay, uh, There was no mention of where our freedoms, our liberties were going to be protected in the new Constitution. So that's the problem. You know, Under the Articles, there was not really a problem and a complaint about individual rights. However, the Constitution, there's no mention. So that's going to be the problem. All right, the amendment process. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so the process, you have, it's a two-step process, and you have two potential steps or two potential ways at each step. So to propose an amendment, you can either have Congress or a national convention. We've only ever done Congress because we got Congress up there. So... I propose an amendment. Let's pick a time. No more daylight savings times and fall back and all that kind of stuff. Let's pick a time. I propose it. If two-thirds of the full House and the full Senate, so 535, say yes, then it goes to the next step. Okay? The next step is the states. The states have to ratify. So it either goes to the state legislatures or it goes to state conventions. We've only done the state conventions once. That was to repeal the 18th Amendment. So we do state legislatures. If three-fourths of the state legislatures say yes, then it's an amendment. All right. Remember, it is only a legislative process. There is no presidential veto. There is no Supreme Court declaring something unconstitutional. Because once it's a part of the Constitution, once it's been amended, it is a part of the Constitution. And you can't say that's un unconstitutional. So that's the process. Why is it difficult? So those are pretty high bars. They're not as high as the articles. Remember, articles was 13 out of 13 to change that thing. OK, uh, so they're not that high, but they are pretty strong. And so uh, we don't want the Constitution just being changed for any little thing. OK, a uh, long time ago now, the, I think there is a play. I think Hershey, Pennsylvania is a place. And I think that's where Hershey chocolate is and all that kind of stuff. I, I can't remember if it was I think it was a House member from Pennsylvania. Wanted to make a, a law and it, it wasn't really a law. It was like a. It was some kind of, I guess, declaration or something like that. Hey, Hershey, Pennsylvania is the chocolate capital of the world. 
and went before Congress with that. Did that need to be an amendment? You know, we don't want something silly like that being proposed as an amendment and then it getting through because the amendment process is so easy. So we want the amendment process to be a pretty rigorous process so that we can vet these amendments and make sure they're valid and they're needed. All right, let's take a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, and let's wrap this thing up. So first up uh, is federalism, and federalism, remember, is the sharing of powers between the different levels of government. Now, we concentrate in this class on the feds and the states, but we could also go further down to the local levels and even further if we wanted to, but that's what we concentrate on. Then the question becomes, well, how does the federal government get the states to do what they want them to? Because, remember, the states really want to operate how they want to operate. They want to do their thing. They don't want to listen to the federal government. All right. Uh, And so the federal government entices the states to do what they want to through money. So like I said in class, the biggest chunk of a state's budget income comes from federal government and the money for the different programs and the different things that they're going to do. And that's fiscal federalism. All right. And it's broken down and do a couple of different things. They're categorical grants and block grants. So categorical grants, remember, those are the things that come with strings attached. So you get this money as long as you do this. It's a way for the feds to entice states to enact policies, enforce laws that they want to see done. All righty. So uh, then using the example in uh, the review about maybe your parents give you a gas card. You know, you drive and, hey, we'll pay for your gas. Here's this card. And you can use it as long as you get straight A's. If your grade drops below B, you lose your gas card. That would be an example of a categorical grant. So here's the money. And, you know, you can use it for this gas as long as you keep your grades up, as long as you keep that A. So that's going to be a categorical grant. Um, and you know, we, we talked about the drinking age in class, and that's a, an, an example of the crossover sanctions we'll talk about in just a minute. The block, or let me take a step back. So not on the study guide, but within categorical, categorical grants, you got project and formula grants. Remember, projects, that's based on merit. So that's your scholarships that you're going to be applying for. Uh, that's the grants that, that you know, Gwinnett County applies for, you can apply for, and it, you get it based on the merit. So if your application is the best, then that's who gets the money. Formula, you hit a number. And it doesn't matter what's going on. If you hit that number, you get the grant. Now, the block grants, this is the one that states like. It's still money that's designated for a specific policy, for a specific area, but the states get to run that program how they want to. And the best example of that is welfare. The welfare program was turned over to the states, still federally funded but the states can run it how they want to. So the states continue to get money from the federal government and they run this program as they see fit. So that's why welfare programs are going to be different across the country. Now the crossover sanctions, remember this is stuff uh, that if you don't do this, 
you lose this money over here. And the drinking age, the blood alcohol level, all those things are part of the crossover sanction. So, you know, they have the road construction money tied to the drinking age. So if you, as long as you have this policy in place, the drinking age is 21, then you get to keep your money, your road construction money. Dual versus cooperative. <clears throat> so the two types of federalism we got. Dual, that is the layer. So the states and the feds do their thing and they stay in their lanes. Cooperative, marble cake, is where they are going to work together. And there's a blending. And you don't know who's who. Last few things here. McCullough versus Maryland. Remember, this was uh, way back when, 1819, I think it was or so. Uh, and it's centered around the Bank of the United States. You need to remember this. Okay, first off, uh, it was a win for the federal government, okay? Uh, and there was two clauses that were verified, the necessary and proper and the supremacy. So the necessary and proper clause got basically vetted here by the Supreme Court because the question was, can the national government, can Congress even create this bank? They had The national Congress had cited the necessary and proper clause as saying, yes, we can. The Supreme Court checked it off and said, yes, they can do that. It's within their, it's within reason. Commerce Clause says they can do this. Therefore, they can create a bank because banks deal with commerce. The second thing was the Supremacy Clause. Can Maryland tax this federal institution? Supremacy Clause says no. And the Supreme Court is going to agree and say, yeah, the states can't do that kind of stuff. U.S. versus Lopez is a loss for the federal government. And this deals with federalism and the Commerce Clause. Remember, Lopez brought a gun to school. He was caught and charged with um, uh, the Gun-Free School Zone Act, okay, at the state level. The federal government, and I need to look into it at, and figure out why they wanted to get involved, but they came in and they charged him at the federal level. So this is why it's Lopez versus the U.S., because he's going to argue federal government shouldn't be involved here. And the Supreme Court is going to agree that this is not a commerce thing. This gun is not going, this single gun is not going to lead to uh, some kind of big commerce issue amongst the states. And so they were kind of, the state, the federal government was kicked out and it was a reduction of power for the federal government. Finally, mandates, remember those are the um, directives to the state. Sometimes they're funded, sometimes they're not, but you got to do this. All right. And we use the example of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Guys, that's the review. If you have questions, Send me a message on talking points, email me, whatever you got to do. Best of luck, and let me know if I can help you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. We're picking up with the Electoral College. So the Electoral College, remember, this was a fail-safe. Um, there was a lot of distrust. If you remember the federal negative, there's a lot of back and forth and discussion about who should pick who you know, when it comes to the House members, when it comes to senators. You know, should citizens have that vote? Should citizens have that say-so? Uh, and the president, there was a lot of questions about who should pick the president. Eventually, the framers settled on the Electoral College being the ones that will technically cast the deciding vote for our president. Now, once again, like I said in class, your vote still matters. You have Your person has to win whatever state you're living in in 2024, uh, whether you're still here in Georgia whether you move out of state for college, whether you move out of state for work, military, whatever you do, okay, your vote still matters because your person has to win the state, all right? But at the end of the day, it's the states, really, okay, that are going to make the difference with the Electoral College because the states and those numbers, Georgia has 16 electoral votes, Texas has 40, I think it was, so on and so forth, Um 
So you, you could say that the Electoral College kind of breaks us down away from individual citizens and puts more emphasis on the individual states, okay? Uh, because the state, the state's numbers, the state's votes are what's going to matter. All right, the Great Compromise. Uh, this is the one that can combine the Virginia and New Jersey plans. Remember, the Virginia plan uh, was Madison's plan, and uh, it called for a two-house legislature and population was going to be the determining factor. Big states were very happy. Little states wanted to have more equality. So the New Jersey plan was presented. Hey, let's have equal. All right. And so the Great Compromise was created after a lot of back and forth. You know, we snap our fingers and here's the Great Compromise. It's done. But we need to remember it took a while. It was a process. But the Great Compromise will combine the two. We'll have a House of Representatives based on population. So bigger states were happy there. Uh, and then the Senate was created based on equality. Um, and that's going to mean that there's two per state. So we have 100 senators nowadays. Uh, the whole issue about how to pick those people, whether it be uh, state legislatures that pick them, whether it be popular vote and things like that, uh, all that was was a part of the debate, but it wasn't wrapped into this, this compromise. All right, the separation of powers and the checks and balances. So we talked about this with Montesquieu. Remember, Montesquieu wrote about the separation of powers and how we need to have um, a government that does not have one person in charge of everything. And so that's why we have our three branches. We have the, the legislative branch, which will write the laws, the executive, who will uh, enforce, and then we have the, the judicial, which will interpret the laws. And so we have that separation of powers. Uh, and it's important that no one branch gets too powerful. And so that's why we have checks and balances in place, okay? So we created this system of checks and balances um, to make sure that the president doesn't get too powerful, to make sure that Congress doesn't get too powerful. And so, you know, there's all sorts of things they can do to each other. The president can veto laws. Congress has to give advice, or let me say the Senate specifically, has to give advice and consent on appointments from the presidency. The judicial branch is able to uh, interpret laws and declare stuff unconstitutional. So all that stuff comes with checks and balances. All right, representative democracy. Remember, that's what we are. Okay, we are, you know, we're a republic, representative democracy. It's pretty much the same thing at this point. Uh, we, we were considered a republic. Uh, but anyways, that's where we elect officials to make decisions for us. Okay, so a direct democracy would be where we're all actively taking part. We're all actively voting on almost every single issue. There'd be too much time and too much work. So we don't do that. We instead elect people to make decisions on laws and policies for us. Pluralist versus, versus elite democracy. So these are two ideas of democracy. Uh, the pluralist, this is the groups. All right. So this is where the groups are all competing for the government and, uh, or the government's attention, trying to get the government to pass laws and policies that benefit their group. All right. This is what uh, Madison and Fed 10 is writing about. Speaking of that, uh, he did write about separation of powers and checks and balances in Fed 51. So just a, a quick pitch for taking a look at Fed 51 if you want to. Uh, anyways, the pluralist democracy, the groups are going to run things to an extent. Okay. The, the, the thing is, the groups are going to be so, uh, there's going to be so many of them that they're going to keep each other in check in a pluralist democracy. So no one group gets too powerful. No one group uh, has the advantage, basically. Uh, elite democracy, this is where you have a small group. And when we're saying small group, just a few people uh, based on whatever makes them elite, 
running games. Concurrent powers, those are the powers shared by the federal and state governments. So we talked about taxes um, in the as being a shared power. Here in Georgia, we pay a state income tax and we pay a federal income tax. We pay both. So they can do that. Any, any power that they share, any responsibility they share, that's concurrent. Implied powers, those are those powers that aren't listed in the Constitution, but you can read the Constitution and interpret it and say, hey, this is what it what it says. This is what it means we can do. Uh, it's sometimes re referred to as the necessary and proper clause because Congress uses this all the time. All right. Uh, you might also see it as the elastic clause because it allows them to stretch their powers. So here's what they can do. Here's the express power and express powers, enumerated powers. Those are just the ones that are written into the Constitution. Hey, this is what they can do. But if we interpret it this way, we can do this. That's the necessary and proper part. So as long as Congress is doing something within the constitutional responsibilities, they're allowed to kind of color outside the lines a little bit. And that's the necessary and proper clause. Express powers, we just said, those are those powers that are written into the Constitution. You can go find them. You can see them. Reserve powers are powers of the state. So those are powers that are left to the state. Education, marriage, uh, all those sorts of things are going to be reserved. Uh, the amendments. So uh, just these are the ones you're going to see on the test. Um, I didn't try not to go overboard with the amendments. Uh, the First Amendment, specifically religion. You've got two clauses to remember. Free exercise and establishment. Free exercise is what allows you to worship how you want to, as long as you're not partaking in illegal things. Uh, you can pretty much worship and do things you know, kind of your own way. All right. Um, there is a fine line here sometimes for the government to, to walk with what is a, a valid and real religion and what's one for you know ulterior motives. Uh, but for the most part, as long as you're not doing something crazily illegal, you're probably okay to worship how you want to. Uh, and then the Establishment Clause, this says that the government will not create a state-sponsored religion. So this is supposed to keep uh, there from ever being a first church of the United States, and we're forced to go uh, all the time to this church, all right? And this applies to here at schools because a school <clears throat> is a state-run thing. You know, we're run by the, the state, by the state government. All right, four through eight deals with the rights of the accused. So from the time you're a suspect to the time you're incarcerated, you have rights. Okay, the Fourth Amendment protects you from search and seizures that are illegal. The Fifth Amendment protects you uh, from having to talk to the police. Remember, you know, you have the right to remain silent. You don't have to talk. You don't have to answer questions. Uh, and then when you go to court, you also have the right to remain silent. You don't have to, to answer questions that are going to self-incriminate you. All right. Once again, don't get on the, the stand and plead the Fifth every time. That makes you look guilty. The Sixth Amendment is your right to a fair and speedy trial and all the things that come with that. A lawyer, a jury the right to confront your witnesses. The Seventh Amendment is on the civil side. You have a right to a jury in any kind of monetary dispute over $20. And then the Eighth Amendment protects you from cruel and unusual punishment. All right. So your rights don't stop at your arrest. Your rights don't stop at your trial. Your rights don't stop at your incarceration. You have rights throughout your life. You have those natural rights. Uh, so that's the fourth through eight. And, and those questions are bundled together, or those Amendments are bundled together into one question. Uh, the 10th Amendment, that is what makes the reserve powers. So it says as long as the Constitution doesn't specifically deny something, then it's left to the states. And we use the example of money. Congress is the only ones allowed to print, print money. States can't do that. It is specifically denied. Marriage, education, 
licenses, things like that. That's all up to the states, elections. All right, the Commerce Clause. Remember, this was created because commerce was a mess during the Articles of Confederation time. And so uh, it, they, the framework specifically put in there, the only people that can control interstate commerce is the federal government. Now, this is a way they have expanded their power. Okay, so it is sometimes kind of used as a catch-all. And the thing to remember about the Commerce Clause, the federal government, we sometimes view them as this all-powerful entity. But at the end of the day, they rely heavily, heavily on the states to get stuff done. They rely on the states to enforce laws, to enforce court decisions. All right. The problem becomes, well, what if they're not doing what they're supposed to? And what if our threats, what if our monetary restrictions aren't cutting it? So sometimes they have to use the Commerce Clause to get involved, where it's really you know, left to the states traditionally, all right? And so they will, will cite, hey, interstate commerce, that means that's something that we can regulate. Therefore, we can come in and we can enforce, enforce laws associated with that. So it's kind of a roundabout way of getting involved in states' issues where they might not necessarily usually have a, a foot to stand on, okay? Let's take another quick break there.